2: Welcome to a special edition of The Economist Asks. I'm Daniel Franklin, the executive editor of The Economist, and on this episode we imagine the world if... ...where we feature an assortment of scenarios and possibilities, whimsical projections and oddball prophecies. Some plausible and some not quite so plausible... So, what if Emmanuel Macron revolutionized the French economy,
3: French society and Europe too? He gives his Bastille Day address. It's a very symbolic moment. It speaks about France, modernity, confidence, and the success that his presidency has turned out to be.
2: What if blockchains ran the world? Imagine a world where, when a child
1: is born, instead of getting a birth certificate, it could get a digital birth certificate baked into a blockchain.
4: What if we had successfully cloned humans? Then it became much more popular, it became much cheaper, and it became really quite fashionable for a while. And finally, what would
2: the world be like if we could control the weather? Would we stop moaning about it?
0: I may want to have sun, Daniel, in my yard, but you're next door to me. You may want to have rain for your garden. So the next thing you know, we're having conflicts neighbor to neighbor.
2: Let's start by transporting you to July the 14th, 2026, Bastille Day in Paris. Imagine the world if Emmanuel Macron, still the president of France and well into his second term, revolutionized his country and the continent of Europe over the previous nine years. The reforms of his En Marche party succeeded and gave France a newfound economic and societal vigour, which had challenged Germany's dominance. Sophie Peder is the economist Paris bureau chief, and she joins us now. Hello Sophie. Hi Daniel. So take us to Bastille Day and describe the scene in Paris in 2026.
3: Well of course the traditional Bastille Day speech given by a French president takes place in the Elysee Palace, a historic mansion in uh, the centre of Paris. But by 2026 Emmanuel Macron who's towards the end of his second term has actually transferred the presidency to a completely different location. It's a sort of symbolic move to the suburbs, to the banlieue, and he's created this modernist glass and steel structure which is airy and light and sort of speaks of the future and of, of French creativity. And he gives his Bastille Day address from this building. It's a very symbolic moment, it sort of speaks about France, modernity, confidence and the sort of success that his presidency has turned out to be.
2: So huge change but as you imagine it unfolding with the premise that it's all successful ultimately, do you see everything go smoothly or does he make some mistakes early on?
3: No, of course, in the early days there were all sorts of things that went wrong, and there were some of them were predictable, you know, ambitious young presidents with a sense perhaps of overconfidence. He got himself entangled in, in a war in in Niger against a sort of Islamist incursion which bogged down France into a foreign adventure that it really found difficult to get out of. He also found it difficult to manage some of those new MPs who were elected back in 2017. Hommage had over 300 uh, new deputies, some of them had never set foot inside the National Assembly building and they were quite difficult to manage so he had some close scrapes with uh, getting some of his legislation through. And then of course there was the famous autumn of mécontentement which was a reaction to his Labour bill. This was the moment when he had to face down unions, street protests and basically anyone who was opposed to the idea of loosening up the French Labour market. But in a way you know he needed that that sort of moment of decisive leadership, conflict, a moment when he could show that he was willing to press ahead. And some of the commentators at the time called it his Thatcher moment, you know, when he was actually able to really show that he was ready to push France ahead against sort of uh, resistance on the street.
2: And then things turn around. So what really changes in France? What are the vital reforms that start to make a difference?
3: The Labour Bill was crucial because that made it much more easier for companies to hire staff, there was a return of confidence, business felt that it was being supported rather than constantly held back as had often been the case in France in the past and this led to a sort of an upturn in the economy which was in a very favourable context anyway because the Eurozone had begun to, to turn and therefore there was a sort of virtuous circle whereby France and the Eurozone both managed to benefit from each other's growth and this really enabled France to sort of take advantage of all the attributes that it had always had. You know, strong engineering, it's a very strong demography, it's a centre of excellence in in craftsmanship, in luxury, in in creativity, even in innovation. It became a centre of research into artificial intelligence, for example, after Facebook opened a big centre in Paris. And all of those advantages that France had always had but somehow hadn't managed to sort of take advantage of suddenly were drivers of its of its economic regeneration
2: And then there's Paris, a sort of golden era for Paris, I suppose, you envisage. Olympic Games, which seems to be, you know, a big generator of attention for the world and and a shift in the way Paris is organised.
3: I think that's right. You know, looking back to 2024, when Paris held the Olympic Games, and that was, again, one of those sort of symbolic moments when the rest of the world realised that France actually was able not only to run these sort of major global events, but also to reinvent the city, to reinvent the capital. It became a, a sort of innovative centre of thinking about the green city, the smart city, the connected city, and invested a lot in, in making sure that its its outer sort of periphery, which had always been ignored, it's where a lot of its immigrant population had lived, became part of the city. It was an attempt to overcome what had been a very divided city. And that, I think, was showing the world that you know France could actually manage difficult urban centres in a very creative and, and positive way.
2: So I suppose it was the signs of economic success that fed through into Macron's second-term victory in 2022. What is intriguing is how this begins to play out on the wider European level and the relationship between France and Germany, which is so crucial to Europe, starts to change in character.
3: I think this was, was so important for restoring confidence in France – that Macron managed to get through those reforms in his first term. Because without those, you know, over the years, France had let down Berlin so many times by failing to keep to its promises, failing to do the reforms it said it was going to. And then once those had been put in place in France, there was a really a very different dynamic began to emerge. And the Germans began to trust the French again. And the French began to be more assertive in demanding some change of attitude in Germany towards the eurozone and that became the basis of a sort of new deal which enabled the French to extract some concessions. Germany began to be quite happy talking about you know setting up institutions in the eurozone, even beginning to invest more, beginning to talk about treaty change which had been an absolute taboo in the past and all of that you can trace back to the fact that what Macron did was to regain German confidence. And that that was the beginning of this sort of new deal.
2: So justifiably proud Emmanuel Macron, who's speaking on July the 14th, not yet 49 years old in 2026. But let's come back to the present now, Sophie, and say, look, this is a wonderful scenario presented an amazing sense of potential for France and intriguing possibilities for Europe. How likely is this actually to play out in this in this sort of way? (laughs)
3: Well, of course, this is all sort of science fiction or political fiction, but I think what you are looking at at the moment is a change in confidence, that's for sure, in France. There's a sense that things are moving in the right direction finally, that... There's a real sense of renewal you know looking at all the new deputies who've stepped into the National Assembly is an extraordinary sight and I think there is the potential for doing something there's a lot of confidence the sort of transformation that we were imagining there is probably not reachable but it's not it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that there is something that quite significant that, that changes in France I think there's a real sense of, of a new a new era here so you know there will be uh, huge difficulties along the way and nobody's expecting things to change overnight but I think you are looking at a much more Confident and reforming France emerging certainly over the next five years.
2: Sophie Pedder, Paris Bureau Chief of the Economist, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Daniel. Now, do you think Emmanuel Macron will revolutionize France? Please write to us via social media or email us at radioeconomist.com. And now we look at what the world would be like if blockchains were in charge. Are you forever writing lists? Umberto Eco, the Italian writer, once wrote that we like lists because we don't want to die. Without lists that keep track of people and things, most big organisations would collapse. Lists range from simple checklists to complex databases, but they all have one major drawback. We must track their keepers and stop them going rogue. Administrators hold the power. If blockchains, the system which underlies Bitcoin, a digital currency, ran the world and the lists were independent and maintained themselves, what would this mean? To answer these complex questions is Ludwig Ziegler, the technology editor of The Economist. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Ludwig. Before we get into the the technicalities of, of the technology, let's step back a bit and say what we're really talking about. Why is this a big deal? We're talking about the trust business, fundamentally?
1: As as, as you said in your introduction, the basis of almost every organization, there's a list. I mean, banks keep track of account lists or election offices of election lists. So wherever you look, a big organization, and much of that organization does, is maintaining that list. So we've created this this huge trust business around the world that makes sure that the the lists are correct. And now imagine a technology that could disrupt that trust business. And the blockchain uh, may be that, because it's basically a list that keeps itself.
2: And this is the essential aspect of it, is it's it's decentralized. You no longer have a, a central list keeper. In essence, everybody keeps the list with the help of the blockchain system. Okay, so we have an idea of what this is about, and, and what you say is imagining the world where this is very widespread. They're already, as you describe in your piece, a whole swathe of entrepreneurs with their startup ventures imagining areas of economic activity and of social activity where the blockchain could be a new solution or provide an alternative to centralized control. Let's look at a a few examples of that. So let's take something as simple as a car. How would it change the life of a car to have a blockchain involved in it?
1: You could give a car an identity. You could also kind of and bake that in cryptographically or mathematically into the blockchain, basically. The blockchain is a big cryptographic stone. Everything baked into the blockchain, you can no longer change. So imagine with that car identity, there would be a smart contract and I could send money to that smart contract, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, or what have you. And that contract would then do a certain number of things, for example, unlock the doors of the car. I mean, the next step would could be Okay, the the car is self-driving, this car has an identity, but the car could kind of own itself in a way or control itself. So it could earn money and then drive to a gas station or or probably to a charger because it's an electric car and and, and could pay with the money it earns, ferrying around people to pay for the electricity. If it needs repair, it could do that. It could park itself somewhere. So these cars could kind of become their own businesses.
2: So that's cars. What about people? You talk about companies that are thinking of using the blockchain to provide people with identities from birth.
1: So you could imagine a world where when a child is born, instead of getting a birth certificate, it could get a digital birth certificate baked into a blockchain. And that sounds very Ovalian, uh, kind of, yeah, you you get tracked and all all that. But you could actually empower people. They could have more control over their uh, identity rather than having an identity in Facebook or a credit score uh, somewhere in a bank, they could control the identity and selectively, for example, allow other firms or other people access to that identity.
2: What uh, other sorts of activities, areas of, of organization or activities, could the blockchain affect?
1: Government. I mean, it sounds very uh, counterintuitive because, uh, as you remember, Bitcoin and the blockchains were created to kind of disrupt government centralized organization. But you could imagine a government could use uh, the blockchain to manage a land registry. And so you could bake that in. The, the the blockchain became a trust machine would prove this is your piece of land and and then all kinds of things uh, uh, could be possible but not just that not just land registries basically every type of uh, government service uh, could use a blockchain and a country like Estonia is doing essentially that i mean it's not blockchain technology like in bitcoin blockchain technology but a similar technology that that keeps track of everything people do online when they go about their business with the government.
2: So what you're saying is that this isn't some wild fantasy that could in some far distant future happen. This is stuff that's already being experimented with in a real level by governments, actually by companies as well, that are raising lots of money for blockchain startups on a wide, on a, of a wide variety of natures.
1: Exactly. And that's kind of the beauty. I mean, that was the beauty of the internet, because people could just try things. And the same thing with the, the blockchain. People can just try things, experiment. So you can kind of, by looking at what these startups do or what these the governments do, you can kind of see what what what's possible. But uh, but a word of warning. I mean, a lot of what's been done with the blockchain are prototypes, experiments, and all of that. Big deployments at this point, mostly Bitcoin. So. We may not see a lot of these things really happening in the next 10 years. I mean, this is a long-term project. I mean, for double entry bookkeeping to become widespread in
2: Europe, at least, it
1: took a couple of hundred years.
2: What could possibly go wrong?
1: There's one very philosophical problem with this. So you basically entrust a lot of things to to software. And not only any type of software, but software, you may not be able to change. So if somebody puts the wrong information into a blockchain your wrong identity you're stuck with that for the rest of your life you also need institutions that make sure that the right stuff gets into the blockchain if that's not the case the whole thing is kind of mute and and, and that's still one of the problems uh, or another problem people have to figure out
2: Ludwig I always think when we've talked a while about the blockchain my brain begins to hurt a bit but it's been fascinating thank you very much indeed
1: thank you Daniel
2: Our science editor, Jeff Carr, has been looking at how the story of human cloning could unfold and what it might reveal if it successfully happened. He takes us to 2050, when the first human clones are celebrating their 30th Sea Day. Jeff, as you imagine human cloning developing, how did
4: Dolly the Sheep become Polly the Person? That's a very good question, and... Uh, it wasn't actually Polly because the first clones were Taiwanese. The thing about Dolly the sheep was that the way cloning was done was to take the nucleus of a skin cell from one sheep and to insert it into an egg taken from a ewe and the whole package then developed into another sheep. Uh, unfortunately that proved very hard to do in uh, animals other than sheep. So it's took some time for the genetics or rather the epigenetics, which is the way that uh, the genes are controlled in an egg, to be worked out. But eventually a Taiwanese researcher did so uh, and she was able to tweak what are those epigenetic markers in the nucleus of the skin cell so that it behaved in the way that the sheep nucleus had behaved uh, from the beginning. That took some time and so it wasn't until about 2020 that um, the technique was available for use. Uh, and then a few further
2: advances in Science are needed for cloning to happen on almost an industrial scale.
4: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. The problem with uh, the Dolly the Sheep technique is you have to have a willing supply of ladies who will uh, surrender their eggs for the use. You have to have a, a proper human egg for this to work. The big breakthrough was to dispose of the need for the natural egg cell, and that uh, was the result of work on uh, what is known as uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. An induced pluripotent stem cell is one that can turn into lots of different sorts of tissue. It's not one that can actually turn into another animal. It took a second piece of, uh, of research to work out the epigenetic markers that you need to make an induced pluripotent cell, what we call totipotent, to embryoize it as the, the jargon has it. And then you have a cell, not just the nucleus, uh, which behaves as though it's a fertilised egg, and from that you can grow a human being. So the
2: assumption is that all these technical problems are overcome, it becomes a widespread practice, but meanwhile, as this is going on, there's a whole host of, of ethical
4: issues that are grappled with, how did that pan out? The dolly the sheep technique is obviously quite expensive. You have to find uh, ladies who uh, you can persuade or bribe or coerce, in some cases, uh, into uh, both surrendering their eggs and giving you their wombs. So it was something that was used um, mainly by quite wealthy people and sometimes by people with political power. Generally, it was used by uh, individuals who wanted to uh, recreate a dead child, and there it was quite successful because it turns out that personality is largely in the genes. But some people, of course, um, abused the process. There was a famous case of a billionaire who had made his money uh, in the synthetic diamond industry who uh, was uh, cloning his uh, models, apparently. There were rumours out of North Korea that people in the government were trying to clone armies, either or themselves or of very superior Korean phenotypes. But the whole thing changed when the uh, induced pluripotent embryoisation idea came along, because that did not require anyone to surrender their eggs. Then it became much more popular, it became much cheaper, and it became really quite fashionable for a while. And then it ebbs. Why does it ebb? Well, it ebbs because it's partly because it was a fashion, partly because technology changes again. One of the things that came along at the same time was artificial embryos, and you could delegate your uh, reproduction, if you were a, a woman, to an artificial embryo, which could bring the child to term. But also there were um, improvements in uh, other uh, reproductive technologies. Uh, And a crucial one uh, was a process called gametogenesis, in which you can turn um, somatic cells, skin cells, for example, uh, not into clones, but into uh, gametes, into sperm and eggs. And the great thing about that is it means that both parents can be involved genetically in the child. And it doesn't matter, you know, what... the genders, generalities of, of the parents are, and people like that. You know, They would rather have uh, children who are related to both of them than children who are related to only one. Well, Jeff, all that is as seen in
2: your imagination from 2050. Let's come back today and let me ask you, how likely, really, is human cloning to, to happen? How likely is this
4: sort of scenario to play out? It's quite possible, I think. I, I think probably the dolly of the sheep, but not not going to happen we know well it's impossible to do it with with primates as far as i'm aware certainly very hard i think if it's going to happen it'll it'll happen along the uh, induced pluripotent stem cell route there's no uh, one particularly close to uh, achieving that as far as again as far as i'm aware but one can conceive of how it might be done. And it may be that somebody publishes next week saying that they can do it. Uh, There are several laboratories around the world working on these induced pluripotent cells. They are an important resource in their own right because they can be used to create tissue on which drug trials can be done. And uh, the hope is that they can be used to create bespoke tissue and organs for transplantation purposes. So many people are working on them. And if it did happen, would you want to clone yourself?
2: no (laughs) Jeff Carr, science editor of The Economist thank you very much thank you and finally imagine if we could control the weather oh no it's raining in the studio it's starting to hail stop it I know someone who can help. Cal, help us.
0: Oh, if you're just complaining about the weather, I'm the guy to fix it.
2: Well, Kevin Callaher or Cal, is our editorial cartoonist, and he has done a full-page cartoon for The World If on controlling the weather. So... What would happen if you could control the weather?
0: Well, it was an interesting thing to to conjure because at first, you would imagine, wait, this is the thing we've all been waiting for. People have been moaning and complaining about the weather since time began. And anywhere you go on the planet, people are the same. Although I do have to say, in Britain here, they've made a particular art form out of it.
2: Okay, but you as a cartoonist, you can solve all this, Kevin. You can just do what you like with the climate. So what would you control if you could and what would be the benefits?
0: Well, there'd be several automatic benefits. You can imagine if you're a farmer, you would have guaranteed rain when you need it and guaranteed sunshine when you wanted it. If you're going on vacation, you know, you can have snow if you want, a downhill ski, or you've got sun if you want, a water ski. And then, of course, climate change. You can you can control the climate in such a way that you wouldn't have any issues there. So
2: you could actually save the planet. But then, of course, being a cartoonist, you have to start looking in the dark side and rain on our parade, so to speak. <laughs> the
0: dark side. Well, first, here's, here's the first thing that came to mind, is that I may want to have sun, Daniel, in my yard. But you're next door to me. You may want to have rain for your garden. So the next thing you know, we're having conflicts both neighbor to neighbor and region to region and country to country and who oversees and who controls those people who control the weather. But the biggest issue is now you can imagine hurricanes and tornadoes. They can be weaponized by terrorists. And who's going to stop them?
2: Okay. So semi-seriously now, you as a cartoonist, you do get to control things. Maybe not the weather, but graphically, you do have control and here you have free range over a full page. How do you play that out and use it?
0: It is so much fun being a cartoonist, but you also have to deal with very serious issues. So it's that tension between being fun and serious that you try to maximize when you're on the page. And this one was a perfect example because at first you would imagine the weather is something we all share and that is kind of fun. But there could be serious repercussions.
2: Serious repercussions, but I can tell you the sun has come out in the studio, Kevin. You've made us smile today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That's all for today's show. If you want to read more, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit our website at worldif.economist.com. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. In London, this is The Economist.